New cases of the Omicron variant. We have a number of others that are suspect and pending that are likely to turn out to be this new variant as well. How they were traced and why it's likely we'll see more. Stuck at home for the holidays. Ah, oh, it's crazy. Lots of trucks, lots of traffic. A warning to stay off the highways and why that's a brutal blow to interior ski hills. And recharging the B.C. economy. We're very keen to not let those things go back into the ground. Why the province might be perfectly positioned as a battery recycling powerhouse. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. As had been expected and feared, the new COVID-19 Omicron variant has gained a toehold here in BC with more cases diagnosed over the weekend. Symptoms were mild in all of the cases, but as Richard Zussman reports, there are still many questions about the new variant. Dr. Bonnie Henry says it's still too soon for any answers. It's the variant spreading in more than one way. Omicron leading to more cases. We are now up to five confirmed cases. And more anxiety. Health officials around the world still trying to learn more about it. And whether Omicron leads to more severe illness, so far all five BC cases have been mild. Nobody's been hospitalized, there's been no deaths, and uh, they've been picked up in a variety of ways, uh, and we will continue to see that, I think. The other big question is whether vaccines work against it. Three of the COVID Omicron cases in BC are in people who are vaccinated with three different vaccination programs. Two are among those who have not yet received a COVID shot. It is too small a sample size to make any uh, indication at all about things like uh, vaccination. And uh, obviously we're talking across the country and sharing information on cases as we're finding them. And that's really the point we are at globally right now is um, how far has this virus, this strain of the virus spread. All the cases involve people from the ages of 18 to 60. They involve those who traveled from Nigeria, southern parts of Africa, Iran and Egypt. For those unvaccinated, they traveled either in or out of Canada before their requirements to be vaccinated in order to travel. Clearly, clearly people should be vaccinated before they travel. But even with the heightened Omicron concerns, the province is still more worried about the Delta variant. It's the Delta variant that uh, affects our hospital, has an impact on our surgeries, and of course an impact and exhausts our healthcare teams. But how that will change is a big unknown. The province acknowledging there are more positive cases they expect will soon be confirmed as Omicron as well. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, here's a look at today's BC COVID-19 numbers. We have 326 new cases, 2,814 active cases, 242 people are in hospital with 82 of them in the ICU. One more person has died from complications of the virus and 88% of eligible British Columbians aged 12 and older are now fully vaccinated. Keith Baldry is here now with another hot topic when it comes to COVID-19, especially ahead of the holidays. And Keith, uh, where are we at in the boosters plan? 
Yeah, the booster dose is really dominating our vaccination uh, situation right now, Sophie. So on any given day, we're administering about 20 to 25,000 doses of vaccine. About half to two-thirds of those are booster doses. So the numbers are starting to rapidly climb. Here's where we're at right now as of 11 o'clock this morning. 505,000 uh, third doses have been administered so far. The vast majority, 362,000, and those age 70 and over. The rest of them in people such as frontline healthcare workers who got the vaccine very early on and those in immune-compromised situations. What we're going to see starting later this month and mostly next month, a real shift of people getting their third doses in pharmacies, about 500 pharmacies about to come online for the many for the very first time to administer vaccines. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry. One of the things that we're doing to, to make this easier as we come into this large group of people who will be eligible in the coming weeks is we're partnering with pharmacies across the province. We've been uh, making sure that these participating pharmacies are linked to our VCs Get Registered system. That means that when you receive your invitation to get your booster dose, your local pharmacy will show up on your list of available locations for your appointment. So you don't need to call different pharmacies and, and uh, check availability. You can book directly through the Get Registered system. So people between the age of 65 and 70 will start getting their uh, booster notices fairly quickly and then uh, again accelerate through January. And then it will be based on an age system as we saw originally with the original vaccination rollout. Five-year increments, uh, intervals. So again, the older you are, the quicker you're going to get your booster dose right down to uh, 18 plus. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. When it comes to vaccinating children, some parents around the province have complained that pediatric clinics aren't easy to find. Dr. Henry says public health teams on the ground in each community are determining the best place for those COVID vaccination clinics. It'll be up to some communities to determine the best places for it, but Henry says it won't be widespread in schools. It is not uh, a rollout uh, across all schools in BC because that's not uh, the, the, uh, the clinic type that we've heard that parents want or, and they're not the most effective. We did some of those for the 12 to 17 and uh, most children and parents wanted to have a separate clinic where they could come to together. Dr. Henry acknowledged recent challenges shipping the vaccine around the province due to road closures caused by the series of storms that hit B.C. The Vancouver Police Department will not be mandating vaccines for its officers. The move out of step with many policing agencies and even the city of Vancouver itself, which has brought in a requirement that its employees be fully vaccinated. Catherine Urquhart has more on what's behind the VPD decision. Members of the Vancouver Police Department are being encouraged to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but the Vancouver Police Board has decided against making vaccinations mandatory. Our officers are already stretched quite thin and quite simply we can't afford to lose any more uh, officers than we already have from the front lines. Vaccinations are mandatory for other first responders, among them employees of the Vancouver Fire Department, the RCMP, and the new Surrey Police Service. Anybody that would want to be hired by the Surrey Police Service, whether it's a recruit that will ultimately go to the Justice Institute of BC to get trained, or somebody from an experienced uh, background, uh, will have to be uh, mandated uh, to be vaccinated. VPD employees have until the end of December to declare their vaccination status. 
After that, those unvaccinated and those who don't declare their status will have to undergo rapid testing on their own time and at their own expense. It is in line with uh, provincial regulations, uh, WCB, Vancouver Coastal Health. We think it's the safest thing and the most reasonable thing for our staff, for our organization and for people in the community. Vancouver police say they're still working out details of the rapid testing process. In terms of the Vancouver Police Department, that is um, their responsibility as an employer to have a safe workplace. And if they uh, have the information that there's other ways to do that as opposed to requiring uh, a mandate. As for how many officers remain unvaccinated, VPD says that remains unclear, but should be known by end of month. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Work crews are racing to reopen the Coquihalla and Highway 1 through the Fraser Canyon, but right now, Highway 3 between Hope and Princeton remains the only road link connecting Lower Mainland with the rest of B.C. and beyond. But as Kamal Kuramali shows us, that aging mountain road wasn't designed for the amount of commercial traffic on it now. Truck driver Randy Andrus is heading back onto Highway 3 from Hope, and he's not looking forward to it. Times like this make me want, I think I, should, I need to get out of it. Uh, I'm tired of putting my life on the line. That's because he's dealing with a lot of this. Narrow, winding roads, harsh weather, speeding drivers. That turn into stretches where the traffic stops completely. And... And then people passing. That, that's, gonna, that's what the killer is out there right now. Everybody that passes, uh, they're passing on double solids, corners, you name it. Three people died when two commercial transport trucks collided head-on on Highway 3 near Princeton, one of a series of crashes that have plagued the highway since it reopened after the floods. The highway now only open to essential travel. That includes commercial and emergency vehicles, road repair and essential deliveries like mail, but doesn't include visiting family or friends, vacations, going to work or school or recreational activities. A blow to anyone hoping to visit family in the interior over the holidays. This message from Princeton's mayor. Come next spring. <laughs> um, we're, we're really hoping that people don't come over the Hope Princeton this winter. And if you think you can sneak through, chances are you'll run into one of these, a police checkpoint. Yes, we will be turning people back if uh, their travel's not deemed essential. Uh, right now, the focus is on getting commercial goods and commercial trucks flowing back and forth. Drivers imploring patience is key, even if it means fewer deliveries get made. Some of these guys have three loads a week, and they will not miss it. And they will drive like they're not going to miss it. The province would not commit to a timeline on when Highway 3 would reopen for non-essential travel, adding drivers shouldn't expect to use it to visit friends and family over the holidays. Kamal Karmali, Global News in Hope. Well, with non-essential ground travel between southwestern BC and the interior all but out of the question, there are questions as to whether the airline industry is gouging people who choose to fly. Amadagahi looks at the jaw-dropping cost of flying during this holiday season. It took only weeks to feel yet another consequence of the November storms and their brutalizing effect on BC travel. For many people, this is just you know, really a, a perfect storm of a nightmare, given the holidays are right around the corner. 
With the closure of the Coquihalla and Highway 1 due to storm damage and the number three crow's nest serving as a crucial supply chain route open only to essential travel, those hoping for an interior holiday trip face the pricey option of flying. And the demand is clear. Many flights from Vancouver to Kelowna are sold out, but of those that remain a round trip will cost an average family of four more than $3,000. To Kamloops, it is even more expensive. In fact, round-trip flights from Vancouver to the interior are now comparable to visits to Toronto or New York. The reality is, is that could get you halfway around the world. The province admits it does not have much control over the federally regulated airline industry. All it can do right now is ask for an increase in supply. We're working with the transportation sector, including the uh, airline industry, to, to look at uh, additional uh, flights. But experts say the airline industry is already at capacity, maxed out and dealing with staffing shortages. In a statement, Air Canada says the December holiday period is traditionally a peak time for travel. Our schedule was planned in advance, it says, to meet expected demand. And it continues to look at all possibilities to add capacity to markets which is dependent on fleet and resources. I'm sure if the airlines could put larger aircraft or could put more flights in, they would. Um, there's not many routes that are making money at the moment. And clearly there is a lot of demand between Vancouver and the interior of BC at the moment. Demand that may just lead to another holiday season. British Columbians will have to put off seeing family from out of town. Imad Global News. A Canadian citizen banned forever from entering the United States. He's a photographer now, but his past military service in Iran came back to haunt him, even if he had no choice. That's next on the News Hour. A shocking and upsetting twist in a murder case that a BC family thought had finally been solved. Their reaction coming up on the News Hour. And the creepy cyber criminal tracked down in Canada and how he fooled more than a thousand victims later. Right now, though, a North Vancouver man says he's been told he'll never be able to visit the United States again. The reason? His compulsory military service in Iran more than two decades ago when he was a teenager. Aaron MacArthur explains. Arash Azrahimi is back at work. The photographer catching up on a backlog of people applying for passports. A Canadian citizen since 2017, he and his family would often travel to the U.S. for leisure. Now that the borders open again, their most recent trip came to a stop before it ever began. The officer asked me, oh, uh, what was, when was the last time you traveled to U.S.? Azrahimi was flagged for questioning because of his mandatory military service in Iran. As a 17-year-old, he was assigned to a unit called the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, an organization that in 2019 was deemed a terrorist group by the U.S. government. Like thousands of other young men, he served the minimum amount of time and never thought twice about it until Friday night. They ask me lots of questions. Who is your brother? Who is your sister? What's your mom's phone number? Do you have Facebook? Do you have Twitter? Azrami's story is not unusual. Immigration lawyer Len Saunders says he gets two or three calls a week from men in exactly the same situation. This is strictly profiling it. I think it's garbage. I think it's um, it's something that, you know, the Americans, it gives them a bad name overseas. One lawyer has launched a civil suit against the U.S. State Department, 
arguing the government needs to differentiate between the IRGC clandestine arm and the kids who have no choice where they fulfill their mandatory service. We're hopeful that the judge will see reason and we'll see that a blanket ban, regardless of circumstances, isn't good for anyone. To add insult to injury, after Friday's encounter, Azrahimi's whole family had their Nexus cards revoked. Honestly, we, have a, we had a plan for going to uh, Disneyland uh, at summertime after COVID, and uh, I don't know what, what should I say to the kids. According to lawyers, unless the U.S. government changes its policy, it's unlikely Azrahimi will ever be allowed back across the border. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Just ahead, shattered expectations. Well, no one told us about fire damage. Is it a little bit of damage or a lot of damage? A BC family moves to Alberta only to get the shock of their lives when they arrived at their new home. And a young woman from BC beaten up in Mexico. What we know about the suspect. Still a slow go for traffic on Highway 1 through Burnaby. Major delays for eastbound traffic due to a much earlier problem semi. The lineup starts in Vancouver at the Cassiar Tunnel. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A Delta teenager reported missing has been found dead and a man is now in custody. 17-year-old Micah Blom was reported missing Sunday evening. This morning, her body was discovered in a home on Tawasan First Nations lands. Delta police say a man has been arrested in connection with her death and that the circumstances are suspicious, but the investigation is in its early stages. A Vancouver woman is facing extensive surgery in Mexico after being attacked and beaten outside a bar. As Grace Key reports, the victim was the target of a suspected stalking incident in Vancouver earlier this year. And a warning, some of the pictures in this story are disturbing. It was supposed to be a fun getaway in Mexico for Jamie Coots and a friend, but ended with both women in hospital after a professional boxer from Ontario allegedly assaulted them at a bar in Playa de Carmen Saturday night. We FaceTimed. Um, she's like obviously in so much pain. Um, she's like really sad. She's just not doing well. My name is Peter Novacek. My nickname is The Heartbreaker. The man has been identified as Peter Novacek. On social media, Jamie's friend claimed he was coming on to a friend at the Coyote Lounge bar and wouldn't take no for an answer. Later that night, that's when the alleged assault took place. And he turned around as if he was like walking away and then he ran at her full speed and punched her until she was like unconscious, punched her friend in the head and basically when they woke up, she couldn't see, there's like so much blood. The friend needed stitches to her head. Jamie has a broken nose in multiple places, a chipped tooth and a severely injured eye. If you get punched in the face that hard, you don't know what it does long term like and this is by a professional boxer like this isn't by some random like this is by someone who is trained to punch people and hurt them and he did that to a young girl like it's sickening. Local media released Novacek's smug shot and Mexican tourist police confirm he was placed under arrest. Hey do you mind if I, guys, if I sit with you guys? This guy's literally been following me in circles yes, for like 40 minutes. You may remember Jamie back in March when she posted a video of a man following her for 40 minutes near Chinatown until she finally approached a group for help at a skateboard park. And she's just like devastated like Jamie is like the most like bubbly person I know like just such a like sweet girl. And yeah, she's just like 
so sad. Friends have set up a GoFundMe page for Jamie. She'll need surgery in Mexico and may have to stay there for several weeks. And what's expected to be a long journey to recovery. Grace Key, Global News. A BC family who just moved to Edmonton will spend another night in a hotel in search of a more permanent residence. They arrived after a two-day road trip eager to move into the home they had purchased only to make a shocking discovery. Global's Dan Grummet has more. Jolene and Stephen Dean wanted to explore downtown Edmonton. They did not expect to be staying here indefinitely. A few months ago, the Deans decided to move here from Vancouver Island for affordability and medical reasons. They scouted the market and settled on this house in the Alberta Avenue area and took possession in late October. I was telling the kids it was going to be a great adventure. We're going to get daddy the help we need. Before physically moving to Edmonton, the Deans had their realtor drive by the house a few times just to make sure everything was okay. And it seemed to be. But she didn't check the other side of the house. On Friday, the family rolled into town after a two-and-a-half-day road trip, excited until they found this on the door. And we're like, well, no one told us about fire damage. Is it a little bit of damage or a lot of damage? So we go in, and it's a lot of damage. The kitchen's gone. There's water damage in the bathroom because the pipe burst. What was supposed to be our son's bedroom is gone. The fire happened weeks ago, officials say, and started in a shed behind the house and spread. No word on a cause. The deans could not be reached because they weren't in the system yet, according to Edmonton Fire Rescue. With no family in town to turn to, the deans with their three children, rabbits and guinea pigs checked into a hotel, trying to figure out what to do next. And Christmas is coming and we have Christmas presents for them that we had purchased that are now in storage. Eating out isn't good for Stephen. He has a heart condition and needs a transplant. That's why we moved here because BC has flat out told me they cannot help me with my heart condition. The situation with the house isn't helping either. At this point, the deans do not know if their insurance will opt to rebuild or write it off. The littlest one, she keeps on asking when are we going home. There's been a lot of tears from us and them. The deans say they're comforted by people who have reached out to help, but they still feel guilt. The kids were promised an adventure. This is not what they had in mind. Just hoping that something hugely positive will come from all of it. Dan Grummet, Global News. Up next, family of murder victims stunned by new developments. I really didn't see this going backwards like it did. Why even DNA evidence wasn't enough to make the murder conviction stick. Plus, how the FBI and Canadian authorities trapped down a slick cyber criminal who terrorized his victims. Each of us has our reasons to end cancer, and we can, from the patient receiving a diagnosis to the researcher on the cusp of the next breakthrough. This is personal. Give today at bccancerfoundation.com. Two lanes south and one lane north over here at the Lionsgate Bridge. Still some delays out of north and west Vancouver with lineups on Marine Drive and the Cloverleaf. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $55 million, plus an estimated four max millions. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Reaction tonight from the family of a Vancouver Island couple after the man convicted of killing them won his appeal. Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook were murdered back in 1987. It took more than 30 years before a suspect was finally arrested and tried, only to have the guilty verdict overturned this week. Kylie Stanton reports. It was a moment the victim's families had been waiting more than 30 years for. 
Washington State trucker William Talbot convicted in the 1987 cold case slayings of 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg and her boyfriend, 20-year-old Jay Cook. There were very few leads. There were no arrests. And uh, finally, with new technology, law enforcement was able to get some leads and move the case forward and with the conviction. But on Monday, the landmark decision was overturned, despite the case being the first where genealogical DNA was used to convict. Talbot had appealed, citing numerous evidentiary and constitutional errors, including a juror's bias. During the selection process, the woman indicated that as a victim of domestic violence and being a new mother, she was unsure if she could put that aside, saying, quote, a flood of emotion might come over me if I were to look at pictures pictures that were very graphic and cloud my judgment. John Van Kylenborg, a lawyer, followed the proceedings closely, saying juror bias turned out to be the primary issue of consideration for the appeal judges. It was really hard. You know, there's always issues on appeal. I'm aware of that, but I really didn't see this going backwards like it did. The young BC couple were murdered on a trip to Seattle back in 1987. There was no suspect or DNA matches until a genealogist used a public DNA database to find two distant cousins of Talbot, who was eventually charged. It's not double jeopardy in this type of case. For now, Talbot remains in custody. Prosecutors have until January 5th to lodge an appeal in Washington State Supreme Court, or the accused could face a new trial. To have this wound reopened in this way is, is really hard, and to have to sit through the grisly details of this case is uh, not something anybody wants to do or really should have to do. A new trial would allow additional DNA evidence to be submitted, but the family, who has been through enough, is hoping it doesn't come to that. The best result for everybody if you would just change this plea to guilty and we could all just put this behind us. Kylie Stanton, Global News. It took nearly two years, but charges have been laid in a cybercrime investigation that spanned across Canada and the U.S. and involved the OPP, RCMP and FBI. Global's Erica Vela has more on what investigators uncovered. This is a really, really ugly, invasive crime. A cyber attack investigation that has over a thousand victims. And those consisted of everything from private individuals, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, government agencies. There was, he, he cast a very wide net. It's an investigation that has taken almost two years. Ontario Provincial Police say they were contacted by the FBI in January 2020 after they discovered several ransomware and malware attacks that originated in Canada. Investigators determined an individual was responsible for numerous ransomware attacks. OPP says the cyber attacks would begin with a mal-spam campaign. That's where unsolicited emails with infected attachments were sent to the victims. If the infected attachments were opened by the victim, then it would provide the suspects with access to the person's computer. The suspect would be able to monitor their computer, view their webcam and collect usernames, passwords and login credentials. They get access to your financial records, they get access to your family photos, they get access to your webcam, take pictures of you and then send, send them to you to intimidate you and, and rattle you so that you can, uh, when they make demands of money for you. 31-year-old Matthew Filbert from Ottawa has been charged with possession of a device to obtain unauthorized computer access, fraud and unauthorized use of a computer. He also faces an indictment in the U.S., since 2019, Ontario Provincial Police say they have seen a 140%
increase in reported cybercrime. And experts say that's a number that will continue to grow. It has been this way for quite a while. There's more and more every day. And, and if you look at the services like your banking and your telephone and everything, they're all kind of demanding your go digital to get the best service. And to protect yourself. Just verify, verify, verify. If you get an email from, you know, your bank, quote unquote, it's okay to still pick up the phone and call them and say, is this for real? Eric Avella, Global News. A long-awaited meeting between Indigenous leaders from Canada and Pope Francis has been postponed. The meeting between the pontiff and a delegation of 25 to 30 Indigenous leaders had been scheduled to take place at the Vatican during the week of December 14th to 21st. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald says concerns over the COVID Omicron variant prompted the cancellation. The delegation had been planning to push the Pope to issue a formal apology for the church's role in the residential school system. In Health Matters tonight, Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table is warning a rough winter is ahead for the province's hospitals. Even without Omicron, it says the Delta variant is filling ICUs and could put them under serious strains by January. Global's Matthew Bingley has the latest. 165 COVID patients are now in Ontario ICUs, but modeling shows those numbers could rise to as many as 400 patients by January. It's clear Omicron will add to the mix and case numbers will go up more. The predictions for high daily case counts don't yet factor in Omicron, but they do project an increase to alarming levels without any change. Dr. Peter Uni says there is a lot we can do to hold the line. If we continue with the vaccine rollout in the 5 to 11 year olds and get as many third doses as possible aboard and just restrict ourselves a little bit and keep masking, keep ventilating, etc., we can hopefully keep things relatively well under control. Modeling is uh, disconcerting, uh, but I, I think we can prevent um, the major impact by adhering to all the basics that we've done uh, in the last several months. And now Dr. Kieran Moore is extending the pause on expanding capacity limits at some high-risk venues, but he's still keeping the door open to reviewing lifting health measures like vaccine certificates in mid-January. And if our cases continue uh, through and after the holidays, uh, uh, we would make recommendations of government to continue the certification process. The Minister of Health, meanwhile, is confident in the strength of our health care system. Well, we're certainly uh, prepared. Our ICU numbers are still relatively low. But Dr. Michael Warner says staff burnout is a whole other issue. Within my ICU, which, to be honest, has one COVID patient today, the nurses are on their are at the end of their tether with respect to burnout. The medical director of critical care at Michael Guerin Hospital says some hospitals are already transferring patients, a sign he points out that regionally the temperature is heating up on the healthcare system. Now is the time to take proactive measures so that we don't have more tertiary referral centers that are being overrun by COVID patients. Matthew Bingley, Global News. The Senate has given approval to the legislation banning conversion therapy in Canada. After minimal debate, senators agreed to fast-track Bill C-4 through the legislative process and deem it passed. The bill sped through the House of Commons last week without debate. The bill makes it a criminal offense to force a person to undergo the traumatizing practice of conversion therapy aimed at altering their sexual orientation or gender identity. The bill is expected to receive royal assent as early as tomorrow. Up next, an electrifying opportunity for B.C. This idea of 
Recycling batteries fits really well into a circular economy or a closed loop economy. With so many EVs hitting the road, some say we better think about what to do with all of those batteries. And in sports, what a debut for the new Canucks head coach. What one win means in the new era. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Damp and drizzly were two words I heard on the radio this morning describing the weather today, and it just seemed perfect. Let's find out what's to come from Christy right now. <laughs> It is, although I would say it's damp and rainy now. It's certainly starting to come down here in North Van, and we are expecting the rain to come and go as we head through the overnight period. But let's focus in on the North Coast. We've got we've got treacherous conditions in and around the Kitimat area right now. There are reports of freezing rain. There's also snow coming down. It just depends on where you're located. So overnight, we're expecting up to 10 centimeters of snow. That's on top of what you've seen already. We're also expecting freezing rain up to 10 millimeters of that. And that means that we could see some broken branches because of that accumulation on ice so that we could see some power outages as well overnight. So again, that's happening right now and you expect it to continue overnight. Meanwhile, snowfall warnings for areas from Prince George further north through the Pine Pass up to 20 centimeters of snow and 15 centimeters for the Columbia area, the northern sections. Keep in mind, though, we are also expecting snow across lower elevation regions in the south. So here's overnight. You can see widespread snow in areas in the interior, especially along the Columbia and the Kootenai region. I'll show you how much in a second, but tomorrow we will start to see a clearing trend. Conditions turn to more spotty conditions. Uh, it's only a slight chance of showers for the south coast. It's more so in the interior, but we'll start to see a strong northwest wind pick up, and we'll likely see that into our Thursday also. So here's how much snowfall we're expecting for lower elevations. This is bulk of it overnight through the morning hours, and then conditions ease to spotty conditions throughout much of the late morning afternoon hours. There's your Wednesday, everyone. So, yes, yeah, so you can see some breaks of blue sky. The bulk of that snowfall is overnight and through the morning hours. Now, south coast, bulk of our moisture is overnight and a slight chance tomorrow morning. Actually, tomorrow is going to turn around nicely. A pleasant mix of sun and cloud expected. We'll likely see that through a good part of our Thursday also. Tonight's central windows, when the weather window comes to you from Spuzzum, and I can't remember the last time we haven't had a weather window from Spuzzum, Spuzzum Oh my goodness, it's like a tongue twister, Chris. Uh, so thank you to Brandon for sharing that one with us. So nice to see the snow blanketing the region there. That's a gorgeous shot. All right, thanks very much, Christy. All right, Squire's here now. One down, and who knows how many... What did we say yesterday? Bruce Boudreaux, everywhere he's coached, they've been above 500. <laughs> the Canucks are above 500 with Bruce Boudreaux. Um, that was a great game last night. Boy, that team looked a lot more relaxed. It looked like it was having fun. Now, Bruce Boudreaux has always been known for having a sense of humor, not a sense of fashion. Once actually did a press conference in Anaheim with his shirt on backwards. Today, he wore a shirt from the junior team he owns in Minnesota because it was the only blue one he had, and he wanted to wear something that were Canuck colors. Didn't want to wear my, my Hershey Cubs because it's all brown. It would have been sort of like being such a fashion uh, kind of guy that I am. You know, they didn't want that. Yes, he did win his first game with the Canucks last night, and as we said, the team seemed a lot more relaxed, and they seemed to be having a lot more fun under him. Sure did. All right. Also coming up with the highest per capita adoption of electric vehicles, why BC could become a battery recycling hotspot.
Each of us has our reasons to end cancer, and we can, from the patient receiving a diagnosis to the researcher on the cusp of the next breakthrough. This is personal. Give today at bccancerfoundation.com. Do not, Squire, do not think your hair looks crazy, because it looks no, exactly it looks the, same. the same that it always does. Which is I, good. It looks really, really good. Really? I wasn't looking for cheap compliments. My hair does really change from hour to hour. It's My not even day to day. Uh, okay, so the Canuck switch from Travis Green to Bruce Boudreaux kind of reminds me of when the Whitecaps switch coaches from Mark DeSantos to Vanny Sartini. Not only a different philosophy, but a completely different personality. Way more fun. The Canucks players looked like they were having fun last night while they were beating L.A. 4-0. Even the fans were singing, not whoop, there it is, but Bruce, there it is. As for Garland, putting it in front, Paul Coles in the ring, put it away. Garland, wrap around the top, scores! The message last night was, we have a 2-0 lead, let's keep pushing forward to make it 3, and then when we get to 3, let's push it to go 4, make it 4. The only difference is, let's be responsible and do the right things. And that's exactly what the Canucks did, offering up the kind of effort and result you'd expect from a hockey team playing its first game under a new head coach. Canucks beating the Kings 4-0 for their first shutout victory of the season. Steal, Lamico shoots his scores! As a team standpoint, I think that if we're playing fast like that, we're eliminating time and space for the other guys and uh, not sitting back on our heels. You know, forwards need to skate forward, and I think that it's been, so far for us at least, it's, it's been refreshing to... Uh, you know, just we're just kind of going and going with some structure. Structure provided by the oldest head coach in the National Hockey League. At 66 and turning 67 in January, Bruce Boudreaux isn't afraid of mixing things up. He had Elias Pettersson killing penalties against the Kings and plans on using Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser in situations as well. Something you never saw when Travis Green was behind the bench. Sometimes it's a it's a breath of fresh air. Uh, when somebody with a different personality comes in. Uh, and like I said yesterday, it's like a do-over. It's like golf. Like, I mean, they play the first nine holes and you shoot 52, and then but you know you're a four handicap. And, and you come to the back nine, and you go, okay, I got another chance. And, and, uh, and you can play the way that you're, you're played. Sometimes new coaches come in and they put you in different positions, different roles, you know, I mean, and it, and it works for you. But it's all, again, like a do-over, like, you know, it's a, you've had a mulligan. Into the middle, Besser fakes the shot to the side. Miller scores! Can one game resurrect what appears to be a lost Canucks season? We're about to find out. With Bruce Almighty in charge, you can expect an entertaining ride. Sorry. Bruce, in your entire coaching career, did you ever hear the chance, Bruce, no. there it is? No, believe me. I had people tweet that to me, and I just... <clears throat> Like, it's pretty funny. I mean, uh, like, if you lose the next game, it could be Bruce, there he goes. Like, I mean, <laughs> so. Not yet. Not yet. He's got a while yet. Uh, the Canucks, as we know, have not replaced Jim Benning with a full-time general manager. Stan Smeal will be the interim GM. When you look back, it's amazing to think how long Jim Benning was here. Second longest serving general manager in Canucks history. I think only Pat Quinn had a longer run in the GM's chair. Um... Fairly or unfairly, depending on who you are and what you think of Jim, he'll be most remembered for mismanaging the salary cap, mainly through some tragic free agent signings. But let's look back 
at Jim's best and worst moments, starting with the aforementioned free agency. Of all the free agents Benning signed, Louis Erickson was hung around his neck like an albatross. The Canucks got Erickson after he had a 30-goal season in Boston, but he fell off the table in Vancouver. And even though there were other free agent mistakes, that one was the worst. On the flip side, Benning had better luck at the draft table, not the draft lottery, picking players. Aside from passing on Matthew Kachuk for Olio Levy, which was not good, he did get Pedersen, Besser, and Quinn Hughes through the draft. But maybe his best draft choice of all was Thatcher Demko, second rounder in 2014. His worst trade was probably a package to Florida for Eric Goodbranson. His best trade was easily J.T. Miller from Tampa Bay. And even though they gave the Lightning a first rounder, the Canucks could trade Miller if they wanted to for a lot, including possibly a first round draft pick. You want to see a great goal tonight? Watch this. Watch Trevor Seacrest. Now you think he might do the Michigan. He actually throws it in front of the net and Sonny Milano knocks it out of midair. Look how surprised Zegers is it worked. One more look in slow-mo. There's Milano right there. Zegers picks it up, softly throws it over the net, and Milano knocks that one in. Plays of the year is coming up pretty soon. That could be a plays of the year category. I'm that makes it. That could be in, uh, that could very much uh, make it. Thanks a lot, squad. All right. Up next, a speed bump in the EV revolution and how it could be an opportunity for BC. says BC is well positioned to become a leader in solving a growing problem connected to the popularity of electric vehicles. What to do with the batteries when they're done. The report says BC is already on the right road but just needs to go a little faster. Ted Chernecki reports. It's one thing to entice British Columbians with rebates to go electric and even force everyone else to do the same in the very near future. But it's something else to figure out what to do with all those batteries once they get old. Because like your cell phone batteries, after a while, they don't hold a charge. I would assume that Tesla would uh, uh, responsibly dispose of the old one, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of watchdogs, um, you know, making sure that they do the right thing. Currently, there are more than 55,000 electric vehicles on the road in B.C., the highest per capita in North America, according to the government. In a short three years, if targets are met, that'll double to 107,000. And by 2030, there could be close to half a million alternative fuel vehicles lining up at charging stations. And by 2040, all 2.5 million vehicles will be powered by renewable energy. That's a lot of batteries that will eventually need recycling. This idea of recycling batteries fits really well into a circular economy or closed-loop economy. British Columbia has acknowledged that a circular economy is a key pathway to reducing emissions. And British Columbia could certainly demonstrate leadership on this. 
Right now, Trail BC has the largest Tesla battery recycling facility in the Pacific Northwest. The company knows it's a lot cheaper to mine battery minerals out of old batteries than out of the ground. You spend a lot of money and there's a lot of environmental impact whenever you mine things out of the ground. So we're very keen to not let those things go back into the ground. Um, and, and that's what re recycling is able to do. And the thing about EV batteries is that they're very powerful. And even in retirement, they don't necessarily have to be torn apart. But it's still a pretty good battery with 80% of its capacity. And so what we're looking at is we're looking out broadly at renewable energy and thinking, well, you know, if you can take an intermittently generated source of energy and store that energy, it gives you more diversity to use it in other applications. A new report from the Pembina Institute urges BC to take the lead because currently we're selling far more zero-emission vehicles than we have capacity to recycle. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Uh, three years ago, when, when it was just me and two other people at Global BC and four chargers here, there was <laughs> never a problem getting a charger, but so many people in this building have got electric vehicles. It's very difficult to get I on know. the charger now by the time we get to work. Yeah. I, yeah. I almost ran out of juice. I know <laughs> the rest of you hate it when we talk about our cars. Yeah, rich people problems. It's come on now. Come on. Sam, you can get a Corolla. I don't have to pay for gas, yeah. and I can get more than 30 liters worth. Exactly. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Uh, last word on the weather, Christy. Sure. Soon enough, though, Squire, everyone will have it. It will not be a rich person problem, as mm -hmm. Chris once told me, and I'm heading that way hopefully soon. Uh, so tomorrow we've actually got a pleasant day on the way for the south coast. A quick reminder, again, Kitimak area is currently reporting freezing rain, so watch for very icy conditions on the roads there. Couldn't you just get a very long extension cord, you two, and drive that one? <laughs> That's true. That's a good Thanks idea. Thanks for the warning, Christy. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night. Good night, all.